You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. So a lot of you uh, around you, there's a little bookmark here. And we made these for you guys this week. Uh, Please take one. Put that in your Bible. What this is, is it corresponds to the most recent podcast, I think that was released uh, last Wednesday, on how to read your Bible. This is a really, really big deal for those who say they love Jesus. Um, The Bible is God's word, and to know how to handle it and apply it, uh, man, that's something that, that we can spend our lifetime doing and thinking about and practicing And this bookmark will help you do that. So I encourage you to listen to the podcast and just put this in your Bible. Um, Honestly, last week at our city group, we just walked through this progression in our city group and made this our discussion questions. And it actually, I didn't know it was going to happen because I'd never done this before. Um, But it actually, I felt like produced a really, really beautiful conversation in our city group. So for discipleship, as you're reading your Bible on your own, for discipleship as you're reading with others. If you just did these four progressions and, and thought about the outline here, you'd be well on your way. Now, there's a lot more when it comes to interpreting the Scripture, but this is a great starting point, especially for how to apply it, okay? So we talk a lot about, uh, talk about a lot more in the podcast, and so um, check that out. And this is the book the guy I interviewed wrote this book, uh, Asking the Right Questions, A Practical Guide to Understanding and Applying the Bible. And you'll see what's on that bookmark fleshed out in this book. And so um, let's see. Who uh, traveled the farthest to be here today? Anybody travel outside of the state? Oh, our new friends, my man Zach here. I'll always remember his name. Here, Autumn, will you give that to, to our new friends there? Zach and, I forgot your name already, Cassie, Zach and Cassie, welcome you guys. All right, so if you got a Bible, let's go ahead and open it to Matthew 21, Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, and Kim read the text. We've been journeying our way through Matthew. I think based on how the calendar lays out, we'll be finished before the end of the year. Uh, Yeah. It's been, it's been a journey, Matthew's 28 chapters, um, but man, I feel like it's been really a blessing. It's been blessing me, and I'm probably the one who gets to learn the most. So let me talk about this concept to start. This is something that I think about a lot, especially in leadership and in relationships with people, in the family, in the workplace, at church. Here's the concept. Let's see if you can relate to this. Conflict often arises due to being disappointed because your expectations have not been fulfilled. Anybody relate to that in marriage? Hello. Roommates, bosses, employees, siblings, yes. Uh, My kids chime chime in here. Conflict often arises due to being disappointed because your expectations have not been fulfilled. Fulfilled. I see this over and over again. It feels like, you know, whether in my marriage or in relationships in the church, oftentimes conflict can be boiled down to expectations not fulfilled. So think about like a newlywed couple. 
And the expectation is, oh, we go to my family for Christmas. Well, where did that expectation come? Well, that expectation came from, I, I used to be single, and I would go to my family's house for the holidays, but wait, oh, and there's a collision of expectations that I didn't even know I had, right? Maybe you assumed that you would get that raise at work, and you have your evaluation with your boss, and it's like, didn't get the raise at work. Disappointed. Maybe some conflict, some emotions, right? I, I learned this lesson the hard way with my wife. I, I've been married to her for, I don't know, let's see, probably 17 years. I did not know that she did not like surprise parties. So I set the expectation that we were going to get away for her 40th birthday. Is that right? 40th birthday? Yeah, your 40th birthday. Uh, 40th birthday, we were going to get away. Our friends have this cabin up north, beautiful cabin. It's not really a cabin. It's more like a mansion. Um, mansion on the lake. And they were going to let us have it for a couple nights to celebrate her 40th birthday. Well, little did she know that that's not actually what we were going to do. And we were driving. It's long story. But long story short, we were driving away. I get a phone call. It's a pretend phone call. Oh, babe, we got to turn around and, and show up to the neighbors next door. And we show up to the neighbors next door, and friends and family are there. Surprise! And Kim's like, you know, she's surprised, you know. Um, but she had it in her mind that we're doing a little quiet getaway to the mansion by the lake, and now it's a surprise party, and we have other plans. And uh, we worked through that. It was all right. It was all right. But I learned about my wife that day. Expectations, Right? Expectations. Conflict often arises due to being disappointed because your expectations have not been fulfilled. We see that come alive in our text for today. So for us to make sense of our text for today, we have to climb into the mind of an ancient Jewish person, okay? At the time of Jesus' life. So verse 12 Look at it with me. Now, we got to remember where we were last week. Uh, Houston preached a great sermon about the triumphal entry, and Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and it's this big fanfare, and there's expectations connected to that. Look at verse 12. So he shows up in Jerusalem, and the Bible says he entered the temple. Now, in the mind of an ancient Jewish person, Jesus is this amazing person. Many people thought he was the Messiah. And what were the expectations connected to the Messiah? The expectations were, we're going to, as Israel, God's people, this nation state, going to find our number one top dog priority in the world again. The, the, the Messiah is going to come in kick out the oppressors, the Romans, right? And we're going to have this political, national triumph. And now here comes Jesus. He's coming into the temple, which is the ultimate symbol of Jewish national pride. The temple is like the centerpiece. You might, you might think of it like for us, like the White House or the Capitol building. For Jewish people, it's the temple, Okay? 
And they're thinking, this is the time. This is the time. Jesus is going to hold a press conference and announce that, man, he's here to take over and his people with him. Think of all the miracles he did. Jesus has power, right? And if he did all those miracles, Rome's going to be no problem for him. So here we go. See, when the leader shows up to the temple, the center of Jewish religious life, man, they're thinking it's about to go down. Romans kicked out. Israel brought back to a place of prominence. Jesus is king. Time of oppression is over. And then look what happens. And Jesus entered the temple. What happens? And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, what about my expectations? What about the press conference? What about the announcement? What about kicking out the Romans? It seems like Jesus is exerting his kingly authority in a way that they did not expect, right? Seems like Jesus isn't as concerned about Rome as he is about the corruption of his people. He's not driving out the Romans here. Who's he driving out? He's driving out corruption in the name of God. He's not doing what the crowd expected when they chanted Hosanna in the highest as he's walking into town. Remember last week. He does not have the politics that they expected. He's not into this top-down power. That's going to come later. That is not right now. See the book of Revelation. It's going to get there. It's not right now. Jesus isn't doing politics at all. What is he doing? He's calling his people to repentance. He's saying to them, listen, listen, the biggest problem is not out there. You think your biggest problem is Rome. It's not. Your biggest problem is right here. See the corruption that is swirling around in this place that is supposed to be the house of God. And what does he say? You've corrupted it. Look at verse 13. You're supposed to be a city on a hill, a shining a light to the Gentiles. That's who God's people are supposed to be. Verse 13. He said to them, it is written. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. It is written, look at it again at 13, my house. Let's think about the words, my house. So imagine you own your own home. And you decide you're going to go on a long vacation. Maybe, you, maybe you're an Epic employee. You've got a month-long sabbatical. Or you've, you know, you're independently wealthy, and you can just take a year off and travel the world. 
In the light of that, you need to have someone to come be a house sitter for you, right? And imagine you've got some friends in your city group, and uh, they need a place to stay. To stay. And, and it just kind of totally lines up, and you're going to be gone for a year or a month, and you've got your friends in city group, and they're going to live in your house. Well, the month is up or the year is up, and you come home, and you find out that your friends in your city group didn't know them too well. Turns out they're dealing meth. How'd that be for a surprise, right? And they've turned your house into a meth lab, and they're dealing out of your house. They've trashed it, right? They got all their chemicals in the basement, they've had some explosions, they've had to like clean up some stuff. It's a disaster, right? How would you feel? You would be hot, right? Get this stuff out of my house. Like, my house is supposed to be a place of welcome and hospitality and safety for my kids and my wife. And you've turned it into a meth lab? Like, that's crazy. Like, that's, that's so disrespectful. That's just insane, right? You would be kicking them out and cleansing your house in a hurry, right? This is what Jesus is doing here. This is what Jesus is doing, right? See, they're taking... The purpose of the house of God, just like all of you might have purpose for your apartment or your home, right? They're taking the purpose of the house of God and using it for their own selfishness. What does the Bible say? Judgment starts with the household of God. And that's what we're seeing Jesus do here. It was commerce as the number one priority when worship of God should have been the number one priority, right? So we have to, again, understand the weight and the gravity of this because if we don't understand how the temple functioned, we can't see, how, we can't see why Jesus was so fired up. So in the Old Testament, the temple, again, was the centerpiece of worship for God's people. And the height of this would have been the Day of Atonement, when a sacrificial lamb, the Passover, was slaughtered, symbolically showing that this animal is going to bear the wrath of God in blood being shed, so that I'm reminded when I look at that substitute, it should have been me, but God has just simply said, I will receive this animal as a substitute, and you will be reminded that my grace has been poured out on you and my wrath has been transferred to this spotless lamb. And God said, this is what I want you to do, and they did it. And by faith, God removed their sin from them as they went and they believed God. They believed God, and they did it. They didn't try to earn it, they just did what he said, And they believed God that he would receive that, and he did, when they came to him by faith. 
Their faith was credited as righteousness. And that was one of the most important aspects, beautiful, when it comes to, it sounds kind of gross to us, but in terms of forgiveness of sins, it's beautiful, right? But they were making it a place where you would buy your animal, because everybody had to come and, and offer sacrifices, and you can see, like, they had, it says the money changers, you see that in the text? People would come from a far off place, they don't have the same currency, and, and they could come and they would just uh, get, get their, their price would be gouged so that they could get their animal because these people are like, all these people are coming. And so, man, this is an opportunity, business. All these people are coming. They have to buy. They have to sacrifice for the Passover. Well, man, this is a great opportunity. Let's gouge some prices. Here we go. That's why he calls them a den of robbers. Feel how that is a contrast to worship and the beauty of what's supposed to be happening in the temple. You can see why Jesus is fired up. Corruption over worship. So God's people were allowing and participating in using this this beautiful edifice, the temple, that was supposed to be for worship, and they're turning a profit out of it. This is why Jesus is fired up. You can see why Jesus would be angry in a way that we don't see him angry in the rest of the Gospels. So what, what, do you, what do you think Matthew wants his first century hearers and his 21st century hearers to understand? What do you think? Trying to use God and his appointed institutions as a means to our selfish ends will lead to God's opposition. Let me say that again. Trying to use God and his appointed institutions as a means to our selfish ends will lead to God's opposition. You don't want God on the opposing team. You don't want the God of the universe on the opposing team. But that's what these these guys were doing. Great business. We can use God to make some money. We can use God's institutions to make some money. Like, why did the Jewish leaders stand for this? Well, probably because they were getting paid too. They're in on it. They have the authority. We can all make a profit here, right? See, Jesus is not having it then. He's not having it now. How does this apply for us today? I, I mean, I, there's a lot we could say, but prosperity preachers, beware. You use God's institution, the church, so you can get rich on prey and prey on people through spiritual abuse and manipulation. Christian leaders, people like me, that try to leverage their authority for selfish gain. One of the qualifications for eldership in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 is not to be a lover of money. 1 Peter 5 says a good shepherd is not going to be a shepherd of God's people for the sake of selfish gain, for the sake of meaning getting money out of it. Maybe it's not money, 
tragically, we've seen in recent days leveraging your authority for sexual gratification. I tremble for Ravi Zacharias. I tremble for, for Catholic priests, Protestant pastors who use their authority to capitalize on sexual selfishness. I tremble for politicians who try to capitalize on Christianity as something to leverage to gain more power. Now, a lot of us sitting here in this room might listen to that and go, yeah, that's out there. But what about, what about in here? Let's, let's ask ourselves that question for ourselves, right? Are there ways that I try to use God in his institutions just for selfish gain? Like, what are my motives for going to church? What are my motives for going to city group? It's good to be introspective sometimes. Now, you can be endlessly introspective to your detriment, so if that's you, be careful. But some of us need to be more introspective. What are my motives? See, I think this text and Jesus' response is just a good warning for God's people. He's going after God's people that are entrenched in corruption and trying to use God for selfish gain. And I think he will do it again by the power of his Holy Spirit. So it's good for us to ask these questions. God opposes this posture and attitude. This is a warning for us. But let's check out what he doesn't oppose. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Blind and lame is, is gospel speak for those on the margins, those that are rejected, those that don't have any clout, those that don't have any power or authority. There's a contrast here between religious leaders and blind and the lame. That's intentional. The poor, the weak, no power, no position. He doesn't oppose those who are weak and come to him. Those that are ready to admit that they're broken and in need of help. Those who come in humility. Remember, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we see that in verse 14, right? If you humble yourself, embrace the fact that you're weak, and just ask God and not try to use God, he will draw near to you. Your, your day of restoration is near as you humble yourself before God and come to Jesus. Your day of restoration is near as you humble yourself before God and just draw near to Jesus. Jesus said it. John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why we name this church the Vine because we believe that. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what do we say? We say the church is called Divine Church. And so as a church, we're coming to Jesus. Jesus, we come to you. 
because we're blind and we're lame in so many different ways, physically and spiritually. But this is an intentional contrast, right? It's a beautiful contrast. Don't miss it. Let's keep reading in verse 15. It was beautiful for, it was beautiful for a second, and now it's going to turn dark again. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying. Now this is ironic, is it not? And we see this over and over again with this clash between Jesus and the religious leaders. You would think that they would see the healings and go, wow, there's something special going on here. There's something unique here. There's something we don't understand. Something amazing is here. Something greater than this temple is here. See Matthew 12 where he said something greater than the temple is here. And should not the one who does these things, these amazing healings, be worthy of worship and have the authority to to drive out corruption and bring consequences for that, but their response, right, is the opposite. They just come with, how dare you? Like, do you hear what they're saying? And I love Jesus' response. Look at how he responds, verse 16. And Jesus said to them, yes, I do hear him. And then he quotes scripture again. Take note, Jesus loves the Bible. Jesus assumes the Old Testament is authoritative. Don't miss that. Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Like, guys, you're supposed to be Bible teachers, and you don't see what's going on here. Have you never read, quotes the Old Testament, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. What Jesus does here is staggering. Don't don't miss it. He's quoting the Old Testament. What's the quote about? The quote is about how God receives praise even from like incoherent babblings of a baby. If the rocks can cry out in worship, God can receive worship from babies in in some mysterious sense that we don't understand. But that's not the point. The point is that Jesus hears the praise of these kids. Probably they were just parroting what what they heard their parents say from, from uh, just a few moments before this that Houston talked about last week. Hosanna, God, uh, Hosanna in the highest, son of David. And he hears these kids that probably don't even know what they're saying. And the religious leaders say, do you hear this? Are you really going to allow yourself to be praised like this? And he says, yes. See God's word. The Bible says, kids give praise to God. Thus, I receive praise from them. What does that mean? It means I'm God. It means I'm God. This is Jesus claiming to be 
God. I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Come to you right now, right here in the temple. I am the Messiah that comes and comes in a way that you don't expect. But make no mistake, I am the Savior. I am worthy of worship. I am God. Like This is Matthew giving his audience a strong, strong claim that a first audience has to come to terms with. First century and 21st century. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is he really worthy of worship? Or is he just an egomaniac that's crazy? Like everybody has to come to terms with that. You can't be ambivalent about Jesus. And his claim is, yeah, I am worthy of worship. And in fact, you're going to find your greatest joy not in worshiping self, but coming to me in worship and then drinking deep of me, the water of life. So it's either go there, right, and drink deep and be satisfied and God glorified, or just reject him outright. But the middle ground is not working. The middle ground's not working. That's what Matthew wants a first century and 21st century audience to see. Are we going to join these kids or resist like the leaders? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, man, it's time to sing. It's time to sing. Like our church, every single church in the world should resound with glad singing and lives that worship him. We worship him with our mouths. We worship him with our lives. Because God is worthy to be worshipped and trusted. That's an implication, application from this text. But I want us to think one level deeper here. Think about the praise of these kids and where it is located. Where are they located right now? They're in the temple. They're in the temple. And historically in the Old Testament, you'll see this if you read through the Bible in a year or whatever, you'll see the significance of the temple for God's people in the Old Testament. The temple was a symbol where God would show up among his people. You go to the temple to experience the presence of God. And it's all over the Old Testament. The Shekinah glory of God made manifest among his people in the temple. So in a sense, God's presence was connected to this physical building. A sense of God's forgiveness, day of atonement, animal sacrificed, connected to the temple. The place of worship was connected to this physical building, this beautiful building, Old Testament, God's people. But what do we have here? Jesus receives worship What is this saying? Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. It's no longer this building. It's right with 
Jesus. The praise of God is not happening in the temple. That's all corrupted. The praise of God is happening right now at the feet of Jesus with these kids. And he receives it. He doesn't tell them to be quiet. No, no, he, he receives it. Just like he said in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here. He told the religious leaders, tear down this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Meaning, I am the temple. I am the presence of God. You come to me now to worship God. You come to me now to experience the presence of God. No longer this building. It's me. I'm the focal point now. I'm greater than the temple. And so how much more is this praise of these kids appropriate? Jesus is the dwelling of God. When he shows up, he cancels the temple and brings attention away from it and brings it on himself. He is the new temple. Like This is a groundbreaking shift for a first audience. So, so as we close here this morning, what, what do we make of all of this? The humble, the broken, those in need of restoration, those who are young and have no authority or power, people like children. These are the people that get it. The proud, the knowledgeable, those with human authority, they miss it. They receive judgment. The lowly, the meek, they receive commendation from Jesus. They receive restoration from Jesus. So what, is, what, is, what do you think God wants us to walk away from this text with today? I'll just simply say this. Pay attention in the Bible, and especially in this text, pay attention to who Jesus drives out and who he welcomes. Pay attention to who he drives out and who he welcomes, who he commends, who he restores. Those who want to use God for their selfish ends will be driven out. Those who simply come to Jesus, either praising him or asking him in humility for restoration, they are welcomed. We see that Jesus is the lion and the lamb, right? You see that. His ferocity will be felt by the proud and the selfish as he opposes them, either today or in eternity. But his gentleness will be felt by those who see him as praiseworthy and humble themselves. Like his eyes can be set on fire with righteous indignation, but also gently calm, compassionate for the broken and the weak. One final thing. I just want us to remind, I just want to remind us that everybody needs the gospel. The oppressors and the oppressed. Everybody needs the gospel. Because here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He, he drives them out and he brings some stiff justice, Right? But in a, in a few moments, he's going to lay down his life for his enemies. And he's going to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So even those 
that are corrupt and try to manipulate and use God for selfish gain, they too can still come and look to the cross and look to the empty tomb and repent and be restored. Look at Paul. He prayed on Christians to kill them. He set up uh, systems and structures to track them down. He facilitated, and he's restored. He's restored. So that's good news for sinners today, right? That's good news for all of us. In some sense, all of us are probably oppressed and oppressor. In some sense, all need Jesus. All can come to the cross. All can stare at the empty tomb and worship and come to the living water. The cross of Jesus where he died for sinners who are willing to admit it was raised from the dead to prove it all true. That's all the proof we need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word that brings us, hopefully that just brings us humility and life. Lord, we, we thank you that you've just told us how you operate. You oppose the proud, you give grace to the humble, and all are welcome to come if we're willing to come in humility. Lord, I pray that you would give us just a sweet, um, just a sweet sense of your presence even now. That you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Lord, I pray that you would um, just give us much grace. All of us are in different places this morning in terms of just how we're thinking about you and relating to you. Lord, I pray that you would unite us with a, a desire to just come to you in, the, in our brokenness and not resist you or try to use you, God. Um, we thank you for this in Jesus' name.